1 Corinthians chapter 8 tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7, if you remember, Paul turned his attention from addressing the discouraging reports he'd heard about the church of pride, division, litigation, sexual immorality, towards the topics the Corinthians had raised in their letter to him. They had apparently written to Paul with at least six specific questions, and Paul responds to them now, uh, each of them in turn, beginning each with this phrase, now concerning. He says that in 725, 8-1, 12-1, 16-1, and 16-12. The first two questions on marriage and singleness, singleness deal with issues, um, I guess, more familiar to us, maybe not as relatable because most of us aren't in those different situations, but the third one tonight on idle food probably isn't something in our minds at all, but in many parts of the world, even today, it would be a familiar issue, a relevant issue for believers. Food raises enormous questions in many cultures, especially those where the local religion that people grow up in imposes dietary restrictions of different kinds. One of the commentaries I read shared a story about how um, after a whole day's teaching in Pakistan on these very chapters, when he asked if there were any questions, the first response was, is a Christian allowed to eat eels? So this is something that was, for them, very they were very curious about it. In the West, however, although we might occasionally wonder about things like this, issues like these aren't uppermost in our minds. But in the first century, when Paul was writing, this was one of the biggest issues, what you could eat or what you could not eat. Most New Testament books address the subject of food in some form. And in several of them, Acts, Galatians, and this letter, for example, food plays an absolutely pivotal role in the teaching. Um, Could Christians eat meat? Could Christians eat meat that the Old Testament law prohibited as unclean? Could Jewish Christians eat with Gentile Christians? Could Christians eat food that had been sacrificed to idols? Could they do so if the meal was in a pagan temple? What if it was just sold in a meat market, if if it was eaten in a private home, if nobody else was watching? And why? Why is the answer yes? Why is the answer no? So before getting into Paul's response, which will occupy us for the next three chapters, really, we need to establish exactly what he is talking about and what he's not. Some readers, noticing similarities with Romans 14 and 15, think he's talking about whether disciples of Jesus can eat meat at all. He isn't. Others more familiar with Acts or Galatians might assume he's talking about the Jewish food laws. He isn't. He's talking about idolutha, which is idol food, or as the SV translated in 8.1, food offered to idols. In Roman Corinth, as in much of the Mediterranean, pagan worship often involved the slaughtering of sacrificial animals, which would, rather, uh, which would then either be eaten in the temple dining room, often as part of a pagan rite of worship, or it'd be taken and sold in the meat market for ordinary people to buy and cook at home. And the Corinthian Christians are asking Paul, can we eat it? Paul's answer, and this is what can make chapters 8 through 10 somewhat confusing, is that it depends. That's his answer. If idol food is eaten in the context of idolatrous worship in a pagan temple, then no, Christians can't eat it. 8, 1 to 10, 22. If it's bought in the meat market without knowing where it comes from or that thinking that's why it was there, then yes, 10, 25, and 26. If it's eaten in a private home, then yes, unless it will harm the conscience of anyone present, in which case the answer again is no, 10, 27 to 
11.1. The food itself, in other words, is not the issue. The issue is the character and context of the meal that is taking place as to whether or not a Christian can have it. Now again, that's not fuzzy math. That's not some word game because Paul is afraid to take a stand. It's not him punting because he doesn't want to give a solid answer. That's the process of thinking biblically in light of what Christ has brought to bear on our lives and on creation as a whole. Sometimes we have to think through things. It's not a cut and dry yes and no. That's actually biblical reasoning sometimes. And as we can see from the relative size of these three passages, Paul spends a lot more time on the first question. Sacrificial food eaten as part of idolatrous worship in pagan temples than he does the other two. His answer, which again in a word is no, takes him the larger part of three chapters to explain. This involves a whole range of theological arguments, social, practical considerations. We can assume from this that it was the main thrust of the Corinthians' question. Can we eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? We can also assume that at least some of them were pretty convinced that the answer was yes. Paul disagrees sometimes and he wants them to understand why. Those whom Christ has bought with his own blood. This is the driving issue behind the whole passage. Those whom Christ has bought with his own blood are willing to lay down the rights they actually have for the sake of others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and all that you declare to us in it. Thank you for the time that the Holy Spirit took to breathe these things into the heart of Paul for him to write down for your church. Lord, may we hear them as your word, inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, for us, all coming from the Savior who has forgiven us of our sins and granted us His righteousness and given up His given us His Spirit that we might walk in newness of life. Please help me to preach tonight. Please help everyone to listen. We ask this in His name. Amen. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So the Corinthians were divided, as we know, on a number of issues. That's clear in chapter 1, verse 10. This is clearly one of them. We have at least one group urging everyone else not to eat idol food. And we have at least, again, one group insisting that there's no problem with it. The argument of the second group, as best as we can tell, is, listen, of course you can eat it. All of us possess knowledge, in verse 1, including the knowledge that an idol has no real existence. There's no God but one, in verse 4. We all know the real deal with idols, so they said. So if idols don't really exist because there's only one God, how can eating idol food mean anything at all? And it sounds like a very strong argument. It makes the pro-idol food knowers that you can eat idol food. They know that because idols are not real. It makes them look like very solid monotheists. We believe in one God. And it makes the anti-idol food people, the weak here, the non-knowers, look like people that believe in a lot of gods and don't have the proper amount of respect for the one true God. And they've forgotten that idols aren't even real. And even more so, if you've read Romans 14, which although it was written later than 1 Corinthians, 
it appears before it in our Bibles, and as a letter is generally more well-known and more popular, we might be expecting Paul here, because of his argument there, to side with that first group, the knowers. We know there's no such thing as idols. Why is this a problem? But he doesn't. Not in Corinth. Not in Corinth. And over the next three chapters, he'll give two crucial reasons for this. One is based on our love of neighbor in chapters 8 through 9. And the other is based on the love of God in chapter 10. Here is Paul's answer. Yes, we're all knowers. Knowledge. Gnosis. Was sort of an obsession in Corinth, apparently. And it appears more in this letter than any other New Testament book. Gnosis. Knowledge. Paul first mentioned it in one five. Fair enough. We all know this about idols. But in Corinth, this knowledge puffs up. Love, however, builds up in verse 1. There's a knowing of truth, or there's a way of knowing truth that does not take others into account. And that kind of knowledge puffs us up, which keeps us from loving others. People are not built up because we know things. Everybody knows things. The goal is for people to be built up And we're built up by faith working through love. In this case, faith that the Word of God is true. So Paul says, look, if you're just obsessed with knowing, then you may not know anything at all. Loving God, on the other hand, means that you end up with the best sort of knowing that there is, being known by God. That's the knowing that means the most, that God knows us in verses 2 and 3. But yes, idols don't really exist. That's verse 4. There is only one God. And even if so-called gods do exist in some sense, right? The things we worship, they are our masters. We don't worship them in verses 5 and 6. He says, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. For us, there's only one God and one Lord. The problem is that not everybody actually knows this. Some people, having lived their entire lives surrounded by idols, would still associate this sacrificial food with the God to whom it had been offered. For their whole lives, that God had been real. For some Christians, their lives or the experiences they've had with things make it harder for them to accept those things as Christians or enjoy them because of their experiences with them over the long haul. For those who used to eat food sacrificed to idols as a part of worshiping their gods, their consciences are more sensitive to what is happening, and they experience idol food as defiled. That's verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. Again, some people were raised their whole lives to believe there were more than one God, or there was more than one God. But some, through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So, given this, and given the fact that food doesn't actually bring us any closer to God, abstaining from it doesn't hinder us, and eating it doesn't help us. We should be very careful about flaunting our right to eat what we like, is what Paul is beginning to drive at here. Verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. That's a period. That's a statement, a truth. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Those who 
because they'd eaten food sacrificed to idols, couldn't eat it without feeling defiled. For many of us, as I've said, this can seem like a slightly distant discussion. We don't really have these discussions about meat or food. But we should be grateful for it because it provokes Paul to give us perhaps the most extraordinary statement for the divinity of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture, with the possible exception of maybe John 1.1. And certainly the earliest statement like that from a historical point of view. Look back at verse 6 again. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The reason that is so extraordinary is that Paul has adapted his statement from the Shema, from the central statement of Jewish faith in one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Deuteronomy 6, 4-5. In the history of the Jewish religion, there is no stronger statement of monotheism, of the uniqueness and exclusivity of Israel's God, that there is one God and it's their God, than this one. Yet here is Paul, a Jewish man, quoting the most central Jewish text of all time and inserting Jesus Christ right into the middle of it. There is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Everything comes through the Father, everything comes from the Father, and it comes through to us, Christ. We live for the Father and we live through Christ. It's hard to imagine a more dramatic statement of the supremacy the transcendence and deity of the Lord Jesus, or a more compelling reason to worship Him with all our heart and soul and strength. And we can probably tell what Paul's punchline is going to be here, but here it comes nevertheless in verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This, in a sentence, is the point Paul is going to press home throughout 1 Corinthians 9 when we get there, God willing, next week using himself as an extended example. The Corinthians may or may not have the right to eat idol food. And that's a question to which you'll return in chapter 10. But what they absolutely must not do is exercise their rights in such a way as to destroy the weaker brother or sister. It is that serious. A dinner has the capacity to be proskuma, a stumbling block, a trigger for apostasy in another that could damage the faith of a fellow believer. It works like this. Imagine one of the weak sees one of the knowers lounging around in a pagan temple dining room enjoying a sacrificial piece of meat like it's nothing in the context of one of these idolatrous meals. What might they conclude, that person? They might conclude that they should eat idol food as well, that they're okay to defile themselves. Verse 10, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols. And since for them, eating idol food is an act of worship, they might also conclude that idolatry is, after all, compatible with Christianity. That they can both follow Jesus and continue to serve the pagan gods they left behind. So for the sake of a nice meal out, the knowing of the knower has destroyed this weaker believer's faith. Verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed because you knew there's no such thing as an idol. By your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. The knower is sinning against them, and in doing so, they are sinning against Christ. 
verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Now, again, notice what's happening here in this text. We do not belong to ourselves. All this talk of our rights and individual liberties and I can do what I want and it's none of your business and all this. Listen to the text here. We can all probably think of other examples. What we drink, the food we eat, the way we spend our money, the language we use, the shows and the movies we watch and even the clothes we wear. They have the capacity to lead others away from Christ by tempting them to violate their consciences. The language Paul uses about this is extremely strong here. Right? You have apolumai, which means destroy. You have tuto, which means strike or wound. Scandalizo, which means to ensnare or cause to fail. Reflecting the fact that he's not, he isn't just talking about giving people a difficult choice in their own life to make. What we're doing can threaten their faith. Faced with consequences like that, my rights now fade into insignificance. Church is much more spiritually connected than we think sometimes. Verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. What is fascinating about Paul's argument here is that he makes it at all. We've been talking so far as if eating in an idol's temple, like in verse 10, is, is actually morally neutral. Like drinking alcohol or eating meat or wearing particular clothes. And as though the only reason to abstain from it The only reason to abstain from it would be to avoid upsetting the faith of others. But we'll discover that's not the only thing to consider. Paul does not think of these things as morally neutral at all, but as fundamentally idolatrous when done without love of neighbor and of God. In verse 10, 1 to 22, serving yourself at the expense of others. So why not make that argument right here and make it immediately? Why make two arguments? One based on why you shouldn't do things out of love for neighbor in chapters 8 and 9, and then one based on the love of God in chapter 10 when he could have done that. He could have just used one chapter, one argument, made it. There are probably several reasons. For one thing, Paul is planting the seed of an idea that's going to bloom later, and that's this. For Christians, love trumps freedom. Especially in chapter 13, but also he's making the softer argument first, Put your care for others before your own rights before ramping up to the more confrontational one later. You know that you're actually worshiping idols. And partly he's about to use that argument as an opportunity to respond to some of the criticisms the Corinthians have made of his own ministry in which he renounced his rights in order to serve other people. And again, that point comes into sharper focus next week in 1 Corinthians 9. Now, There are situations where a focus on what we know or on the facts of our rights can squeeze out the overarching call we have to love our neighbor. That is the overarching task of a believer. To love your neighbor as yourself. Christians are truly free. This is biblical. We can eat meat. We cannot eat meat. We can drink. We cannot drink. We can go here, we can go there, and on and on it goes. But here's the thing. All of that I can takes a back seat here. Because we cannot use our freedom, aren't allowed to use our freedom, 
to stop loving others. And sometimes love, as we've been shown by Christ, gives up its rights to serve others. Who are we? Who are we as Christians? How could you describe us? In 620 and 723 of 1 Corinthians, we are the ones who've been bought with a price. We're owned by another. And we all have these convictions, right? We all have things that we do because we want to do them or we believe that we're free to do them. We all have those. We only think of certain ones as being stumbling blocks or potential stumbling blocks. But if we're really taking others into account, we don't ever have the opportunity to completely disregard what other people might think or feel. Because everybody's in a different place in their faith. We've been bought. The price is the precious blood of Jesus. We don't own ourselves anymore. When we came to Christ, we allegedly agreed with this. Those whom Christ has bought with His own blood are willing to lay down their rights for the sake of others. Now just think think beyond your convictions for a minute. Think beyond the things that you know. You have the knowledge. I know that I'm free to do this. Think beyond those things. Just think about your whole life. Think about the rights you have. The, the, the ability you have, the prerogative you have as a human being. In Christ, none of those exist. Not in a way you can hold over your brother or sister. That's what we're learning here as part of being a Christian. The foregoing of personal rights. We, we, we live our whole lives trying to get our own way at the expense of others. We don't care. right? I want this. I want that. I want it now. Even in the church. This isn't easy, if we're honest, for American Christians to read because we find personal rights and liberties fundamental to our existence. It's in the Declaration of Independence that is the founding document of this nation. When in Christ... All of that has been given up. What am I supposed to do? Just lay there and let people kill me? I don't know. Jesus did. So we at least need to have the conversation, right? No, you don't have to do that. You're allowed to defend yourself. You're allowed to use wisdom. But can we at least consider what it might mean for my rights that the Lord who has all rights gave all of His up for me when I did not earn it and did not deserve it. Such things take a back seat to our calling as God's own family. It at least needs to be a part of who we are. That I am willing, if it is for your good, to forego my personal rights. We lay down our rights. Why? Because not everyone is in the same place spiritually. And and notice here, because here's the thing, because people can twist this now. The issue is not that we actually don't have the right to do this or that, to eat this or that, to drink this or that, and so on. Yes, we do. That's the whole point. Paul will actually go on to say on this topic and in this very letter in 1029, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? It shouldn't be. 
Just because it convicts you and is a struggle for you does not mean I have to take on and practice that same conviction. What it does mean, however, we're learning here in chapter 8, is that I would never flaunt my freedom in front of you. If I know something I'm free to do would bother you, I would not do it in front of you. I would not parade it around and flaunt it and shove it in your face and call you weak and pretend that you're less than me in the faith because you're not free to do that. That I would never do. I would never be so uncaring, as in Corinth's case, to sit down in a pagan idol temple and eat meat where I might be seen by other believers who think I'm worshiping another god. That I would not do. I have the right to eat and drink. I do not have the right to hurt my brother and sister with a callous, uncaring heart. That I do not have. I will not partake of or do things in front of you that would hurt you or at your expense. Paul says, I'm not bound to you in private, but elsewhere. I'm not loving if I don't take your heart and where you are in your faith into account. Because it is probably simultaneously true that while I might be stronger in the faith in this aspect of it, I am probably weaker in the faith in another aspect of it where you are stronger. It's, it's a different mindset. It's not about, first and foremost, the rules. It's about the mindset. That's why Paul says, all through this, he's saying, it, it, it depends. If, if it's like this, then you do this. Later on, he'll say, like I said, my liberty is not determined by your conscience. However, I am called to love you. So I may have the right to do something, but I will not use that right in front of you. I will not use that right around you. That would be unloving, unchristian. Christ died to make us free. There's no question about this. And free means free. Galatians 5.1 Part of being free is not needing to step on or use other people anymore. We're also free to serve others and give our rights away. Not so much because of the virtue in it. The world would do that all the time. There are people that will rush into a burning building to save others that don't know Jesus at all and lose their lives for them. Right? That, that, that's not distinctly Christian. Right? Other people do that kind of thing all the time. It's not so much about personal convictions and virtues. This idea that we're free and we give our rights away. That's more about the fact that we actually lack nothing in Christ. We don't need anything from other people anymore. We are that free. We are that loved. We are that forgiven. We are that righteous. We are that secure. We have that much value. We don't need to get it from other people. So when we learn that we're free to give our rights away, it's ultimately a statement about how sufficient Christ is for us. About how much Christ has done for us. And let that be our motivation. It's about who Christ is and the sufficiency of what He's done for us. That we lack nothing. That's why we would give even our rights away when we need to. Because we lack nothing in Christ. Remember 3, 22 and 23. All is yours. If you are Christ and Christ is God, you don't need anything anymore. 
So I might be free to have something. I don't need to have it. Not at the expense of your conscience. I'll let it go. Right? I'll let it go. Since we have all that we need to be whole and free and justified and lost and sanctified, let us give up our rights in all things. Again, not just where it's easy to have the conversation in convictions. Could you imagine what a place like that would be like on the earth? Which is what a church is supposed to be. Where it was like a contest to give up your rights for each other. I really wanted this thing. This thing is really important to me, but it's an issue for you, so I'm going to let it go. Just imagine. And right now we're all probably thinking of what other people could give up to make us feel better. And therein lies the problem. Holy Spirit, search me. Me. Help me see the truth here. Sometimes it's better for those around us, and that is the heart of Christ. Christ did this for us, all of our salvation for us, which means by doing so, by giving up our rights, we're not losing anything because we have Him. See, if, if you know how people always say you should never talk about politics or religion, well, because both of those things are where you find your hope. You can't insult, you can't really have an objective, calm discussion when what you're arguing is how people have their hope. The beautiful thing about Christ is that we never have to get angry at other people. We never have to feel threatened that something's being taken from us. Because we have Christ. We have everything. It really should affect our outlook, our perspective, our attitude. We can't lose anything. Nothing can actually be taken from us. We don't, our hope is not in getting all our rights in this world. Our hope isn't in that. We don't need to live like that. Our hope is in Christ. And no matter what we have or what is taken from us, we will still be raised up when all is said and done. God is with us. We can lay down our rights. We'll be okay.